Welcome, everyone, and welcome, and, and we're so glad you're joining us on the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series tonight. Dr. Bill Takeshita is the Chief of Optometric Services uh, for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. And we're part- he's partnering with Braille Institute Child Development Services for this informative monthly telephone series. Tonight's special guest, our special guest tonight, is uh, Christina Wallerstein, founder of Playworks, Serious Toys for Serious Play. And uh, we're really happy to have Christina with us tonight. She uh, brings great experience um, to our program and, and over 30 years of experience with Playworks. Um, just, just a quick note, um, this, is, I'm sorry, this is not an endorsement of Playworks. However, we, we are really uh, pleased to have her with us tonight because we think she brings some great expertise. And one more, one more small disclaimer. The Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is a program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The information presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information that will help us understand pediatric eye conditions better. So without further ado, I'll just turn it over to you, Dr. Bill. Great. Thank you very much, Sue and Christina. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening. This is really uh, something that we've been planning for quite a while, and we feel it's the ideal time to have you here. So welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm pretty excited to be here and, um, <laughs> and hear people's questions. And Yes, well, you know, this evening we have people who are parents and we have teachers and early intervention specialists and I know so many people are working with young children. But uh, it just happened to be today I was lecturing to teachers for the visually impaired, and one of the things that we were talking about was how can you develop vision? And this particular topic led to the importance of play. And as I was lecturing about this, we then came to the conclusion that play does not only affect the development of vision, but play is how we learn to use our hands, how we learn to use our arms and legs to walk and crawl and stand. And even through play is how our brain learns to think and to solve different problems. I could still remember as a kid when we were doing different things, just playing outside. You know, in the old days when I grew up, we were playing outside in the dirt. And we found a couple of rocks, and we started to hit the rocks together. And when the rocks cracked in half and we looked inside the rock, we could see all of these different colors and crystals, and it was just absolutely beautiful. But it was a learning process from just playing. By chance, we then learned something that excited us, and we then continued to break a bunch of rocks. And... uh, I think play is something that is so, so important when it comes down to all children and and especially for children with vision impairment. So um, how did you first get interested in studying and understanding how children play? Well, our son attended the Pacific Oaks Children's School, and um, that that college only um, really focuses on human development, and um, and at that time, their school went from birth through the third grade. And we, I learned there over the years about experiential learning and child-directed learning, and I think that, that the value of play and the value of children um, learning through play was um, really quite enlightening to me. Uh, like you, I, I think when I was a kid, you know, your mom just sort of sent you out to, to play. Nobody said what that was going to be, and we kind of made discoveries. Um, fewer and fewer children seemed to have that opportunity. But I think that um, over the years, um, I really became to value more and more what's called progressive education and, and emergent learning and self-directed play, and though I didn't know it at the time I began this journey, um, my son was uh, learning disabled and has um, dyslexia and and dysgraphia, and so 
I learned that um, that when children have issues, they learn in different ways than perhaps the the typical way. I kind of suspect we all have um, our own individual and unique ways to learn, but I just became interested in how to enhance development through play. And um, I guess my first interest was in how children who are hospitalized, um, how their development can suffer through prolonged hospitalizations or um, or just the trauma of an injury or an illness. And as it happened, one of the child development or child life specialists um, that I met at one of the hospitals then joined the children's services at Braille and sort of invited me along to, to, see, um, to learn and see how we might collaborate on finding toys that would really be beneficial. And that kind of began my education and special needs. I think that um, all children kind of learn in the same continuum. I mean, you, you, have to, you have to be able to grasp an object, say a ball, and drop it into to another container like a, just a bucket or something before, say, you can sort shapes and post them in a box simply because you have to be able to grasp and, and, and drop or fit a shape. And so I began to think that, well, we have to help people understand this continuum of learning and how one skill builds on another and um, encourage the children to to explore and discover for themselves um, how the world works. And, of course, with any child who has a special need, you you have to be adaptive, but, um, but all kids need to be able to explore and discover on their own so that they can take that information and, um, and go forward with the next stage of development. Yeah, I, I think that you are so right. I agree with you, and I'm so glad that your, your path has driven you in this direction. I know one of the things that's very interesting to Sue and I, as we work mm-hmm. with so many young children who are visually impaired, is that we know children who are visually impaired may be two to three times delayed in reaching developmental milestones. And we're talking about just being able to sit independently, reaching, grasping, crawling. And much of this is because of their vision problems where maybe they don't see the toys or maybe they can't manipulate it. But as you also said, Christina, the child who is in the hospital early on in life, they really don't have much to play with. No. There really isn't much visually stimulating targets there. They have a fluorescent light, a lot of white sheets, but there isn't that type of contrast for them to see, and that also interferes with the development. But similarly, just to support what you said, Christina, is that in the 1990s, there was a a, a large influx of many Romanian orphans here in Southern California, and I had the opportunity, the pleasure, to examine these children, complimentary, But what we found was that so many of these orphans had very low vision, they had very poor motor skills, they had reduced cognition, but they did not actually have an eye disease, nor did they have a, quote, brain tumor or brain disorder. But it was really the fact that growing up in these orphanages, they were not exposed to things that were stimulating They didn't have toys. They didn't have colorful patterns. And I believe that this was really one of the reasons that they were so impaired. And when these children received play, visual stimulation, their vision improved. And I think it shows that parents really need to understand that children need that opportunity to play and to explore and to learn. It's not sufficient to leave a child in a bed like the Romanian orphans or a child who's in a hospital. And even though it would be ideal 
for the children to have specialized toys, they don't necessarily have to. The parents who may have low income uh, can be very creative. And, Sue, I know that is something that you and your staff have been very, very effective in in terms of producing different things that a child could play with. It doesn't have to be anything special, Mm -hmm. but anything can be modified to have the magnification or the contrast or the lighting or the colors that the doctors have told the parents the child could see the best. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, just to that point, I appreciate you bringing that up, Dr. Bill. I think that, um, you know, I think it's a balance. I think certainly we we need to look at what's around in the household, those issues, those things that, that children naturally are drawn to, like, you know, the idea of bringing out the pots and pans and things like that that bring out just sort of an opportunity for children to make noise and, and, and make sounds and uh, explore and drop and such, just so they know what those what the residents of those sounds are. It gives them so much more information about their environment. Um, but that leads a child, that leads a parent to observe the child's ability. Like, for instance, one of the things we love also is, like, we get, like, a big plastic black bowl or dark color bowl and those white wiffle balls. And, and just dropping, you know, allowing the child to just sort of play with it, dropping balls inside, dumping it out. And if you look at a typical two-year-old in their development, I like to call it the dump and pour stage. It's like they just like to put things in and take things out and see where it lands and follow it. And if we can just adapt that to give it some sound and some color and some contrast, oftentimes what we find is the child can develop similar skills in, in, in a similar pattern if they have the right type of materials to that are adapted. And that gives parents ideas of what their child's ready for in terms of the available toys that are out there. If a child's able to, to drop a, um, a ball into a big bowl and then it becomes a smaller bowl and then it becomes an even smaller container, then they may be ready for something like a shape sorter or something. But to Give it like and Christina and I had this conversation before, but to, in her suggestion, and I'll, I, I'll turn this over to you too, Christina. But what you were saying was so powerful to me was the whole idea that a shape sorter is only going to be playful if both the parent and the child are having fun with it. If it becomes um, frustration for both, then it's only going to end up in a toy box and at the bottom of a toy box, and, and the child may not ever have any interest in it at all. But yet, if we found a way to build the skill to that point in a playful manner, then both the parent and the child feel successful. I don't know what your thoughts are, Christina. Well, I agree with you. I was thinking, too, of the orphans and how um, it wasn't only, I think, a lack of any any toys, but Mm -hmm. um, contact with, Mm -hmm. um, with other children or with adults that being cuddled, which, you know, an orphanage has few caregivers and many to be cared for, that um, that just the inability to interact with um, an adult, uh, thinking of just putting, of upholding your kid and, uh, and talking to him um, or doing finger play with, with the child. I mean, kids have great grasp, many of them, Um, and so if you, you know, if they'll just grab your finger and if you wiggle it, um, that gives them a response, that gives them sensory Mm -hmm. feedback and input, it's it's very playful, and you can even put words with it and say, um, oh, you've you've, um, grabbed my finger, I'm going to see if I can wiggle my way out. You know, making a game of that, so that um, so that they'll have to uh, experience different pressures. Like, oh, now wait, they're going to try to wiggle out. Maybe I can squeeze harder, or maybe I can just surprise them and let go and um, see what happens. I, I, of course, I think toys are wonderful, but I think that the greatest toy and and the first toy that a child has is um, is his or her adult, you know. Um, How could I manipulate my uh, my caregiver? <laughs> yeah. So it cause an effect here. Yeah. yeah, that that you know, or just you know how often if uh, if someone has on a necklace, 
you you don't want that kid to grab it because you know what the cause and effect is going to be. <laughs> but sure, it's in that kid's. Um, if it if she realizes you, there's something interesting hanging around your neck, you better believe she's going to inspect it, um, mm-hmm. see what happens. Um, maybe what happens is that her hand gets removed and and then um, you know the, her attention is uh, directed in another in another place to um, prevent uh, the pearls from being all over the floor. But um, I think it's just um, really important as part of the play is that there's this, this human interaction mm-hmm. and this simple joy. I, I don't know that it's appropriate to this to this context, but I think a lot of times parents of children who have special needs and the more serious the special needs are, the more I think that it's true that parents spend so much time um, in doctor visits and in therapeutic settings, which are valuable, but nonetheless they they're so focused on the business of um of getting the child the best possible services that sometimes they're so exhausted and the child's so exhausted that there's little time to kind of just take a deep breath and um, maybe just uh, kind of sleep in one morning and and um, lie in bed together and cuddle and, and tickle and, um, and have these sensory experiences that are are just very loving together time and but also teaching um or maybe the better word is um illustrating to a child some um some different ways to move their bodies like um you know putting up your hands and say can you can you kick your feet and hit my hands or you know anything that just is involves interplay with with the the bodies that get the kid to be active like you said Dr. Bill that that you have to exercise those muscles and and um in in order to learn to to grasp or um to throw or to, to later to stand and so i think that that's part of of play Yes, and I think it's really a great point and a very important point that we emphasize to parents that truly one of the best toys for their child is going to be them. And let's take, for example, the child who is between birth and three months of age. We know visually most of these children their vision is going to be best at a distance between 8 to 16 inches. Their eyes are usually going to be more interested in looking at things that are black and white as compared to colored. We know that they're also going to be able to see things better if it's in a moderately illuminated room as compared to a dark room or an extremely bright room. So play could begin when we just wake up our child in the morning, it could begin by turning on a light, positioning our face 8 to 16 inches, and we could then quickly move our head from one location to the next and let the child try to follow you. And they think this is a fun game. Or I remember my daughter, I could just close my eyes, open them real wide, close them, open them. She would laugh. She thought it was the funniest thing. And she loved to reach out to grab for my necktie. She loved to reach to grab for my hair. But our hair is very often contrasting. Our neckties are often very loud and contrasting. But it shows that this could be a great game or a toy for a child who's from birth to three. Now, Christina, what toys do you also recommend for children who are either low vision or children who are blind between this age of birth to three? Um, one of my favorite, particularly for the very youngest children, is called Baby Paper. And it's about a six-inch square. It's made of 
cotton flannel, and inside of it is crinkle paper. I've never understood how it's possible, but it's totally machine washable and, and machine dryable, so you don't have to worry about the sanitation issues. But kids really do like paper, uh, but sometimes we might be concerned about them, you know, eating it or mouthing it, which is one way of exploring it. But with, with the fabric, we, you know, it's not going to dissolve like a piece of tissue paper that that they're going to find in a box on Christmas morning or uh, a box of facial tissues or something where they might actually try to eat it and that wouldn't be perhaps safe. But the baby paper has um, gives them an auditory response and the crinkliness and um, the flannel feels interesting, I think, on, on their fingers. And it's a very simple beginning cause and effect oh if I you know if I do this I'm going to hear this sound um, and and that's a, a very preliminary beginning um, experience there are also toys for um, maybe the next stage of development that allow children to begin to discriminate um, different textures or different colors or shapes without being um, particularly um, targeted at just being used in one way. I think um, Sue talked about the importance of success in play, that it's supposed to, by definition, be fun. And if it's um, too frustrating, then it's not fun. Now, that's not to say there shouldn't be some challenge, but the level of challenge kind of needs to be monitored so that uh, engaged by the parents to see if, well, maybe with a little encouragement or a suggestion of, hmm, wonder what would happen if you did this. That, um, that you know, if you can talk the child through a, a bit of challenge or a bit of frustration, that's great, but if the child is just totally melting down, um, you know that you've got to take some steps back. You've got to stop and think, what is it that's not working here? And maybe it's like, um, she talked about the sort of fill and spill um, stage in development. Uh, you know, maybe it's that the child hasn't done enough of that or Maybe they can fill and spill the the ball into um, a bucket, but they don't yet have the fine motor skills to put that same ball into a smaller container. And so I I think that um, that's something to think about. And for example, we talked about shape sorters a little bit, and the one that I really like the best. Is, a, is one made by Ambi where the pieces are sort of three-dimensional in a sense, almost four-dimensional four in, in the sense they don't actually have to be fitted. Like for the circle, you have a, a ball, an actual ball. So if you get it, if you get the ball in the circle, it's going to fall through. You're not going to have to fit it the way you would have to fit a dowel, which, yes, if you put it in, you know, if you put it so that the dowel is round part to hole, yeah, it's going to fall through. But the dowel is round, but if it's, it's no way in the world that you have to, that you can get away with just dropping it in. You've got to actually position it properly. And, and that's something that comes next after just putting the ball in, in, a, in a smaller hole. So um, those would be some. Yeah, those are some really great ideas. And, you know, it follows the developmental phase. If the child is partially sighted or if the child is totally blind, the baby paper that they could crinkle and feel and cause an effect and release it is very good. You could still use that baby paper between three to six months is when the child would now begin to develop color vision and they now also have much better ability to move their eyes. 
So as a toy, mom or dad could use the baby paper and move it from one location to another, and the baby will try to follow it with his or her eyes, and that becomes a fun game. Or the parents could then go ahead and use, for example, it could be a a, a foam rubber ball that the child could grasp and move that ball, and the child could then grasp it and also try to drop it into a large bucket. By the time that the child is a bit older, six to nine months of age, we know that the child has even better color vision, better clarity of sight, better depth perception, and they can then possibly begin to perceive differences in object shapes. Maybe by 12 months, a shape sorter may be something that's appropriate. But you can see how with these particular toys, whether a child is low vision or totally blind, uh, they would be able to use each and every one of these, whether it's a shape sorter, the baby paper, or we have other types of things, just as, as uh, balls that we drop into a bowl or a basket. Or if the family doesn't have the funds for some of these things, uh, most people do have pots and pans. And uh, we often recommend that. Pull out every pot and pan and let them try to put the lid on top of the pot or the pan. Or we get tumbler cups or Dixie cups Mm -hmm. and let them try to just superimpose the cups in the correct sequence within each other. Mm -hmm. What about for the kids who are over one and they're now beginning to develop higher levels of cognition? Uh, Are there other very popular toys that you recommend for, again, both a child who may be partially sighted or the child who is totally blind? Well, I think um, Buddy Dog is a good one. It's uh, a black and white dog, but he has um, he has a pull cord where his tail would be that gives vibration. Um, if you pull, or again, uh, reinforcing the cause and effect, He has a vest, one that is black and white striped on one side and red and white on the other, and crinkly, so that, um, you know, the child can explore the two sides to see the the likenesses, the the fact that they're striped, but the differences in um, red and white or black and white, they can crinkle it the same way they would with um, the baby paper. Um, and when they're ready, they can begin to put it on and off the dog. It's it's a pretty easy uh, dress step in learning to be self-dressing. Um, I think that would come much later than just like at one, but it's, it's one of those toys that kind of grows as the child's abilities to use it grow. And there's a great deal of a textural difference that his paws will have different textures on them. Um, his ears will be lined with different textures and different colors that are um, high contrasting colors. And because it's um, a dog, it it doesn't have to be called Buddy, of course. That's just its um, trade name. But the child can begin to um, interact with it and as um, maybe uh, his best friend or, or her companion or make up uh, as, as a child develops make up um, scenarios with it. I mean, going to start out at, at 12 months maybe just mostly pulling the cord and, and getting a kick out of that vibration. And one really neat, carefully thought out aspect of Buddy Dog is that the vibration doesn't last very long so that the child's not going to sort of just get bored with it. It's the, the idea is that he or she will be um, attracted to that but have to repeat the, the activity. That was the advice of the occupational therapist that were consulted in its um, design stage because little kids like repetition. Um, they like doing the same activity over and over just to see what happens. Uh, sometimes it goes the same way time after time, but once in a while there's a little difference because
because, well, hmm, maybe you, you didn't pull the tail as hard or or whatever that you did a little bit differently. That's, um, your, your brain's going, now, wait a minute, what happened here? And so you'll keep pulling it and to try to figure that out. You may not be able to figure it out on the first day, but that's good because you want the toy to be interesting and enticing over a long period of time. Yeah, and it sounds like it's a really a wonderful toy because uh, for 12 months from one year to two years and even older, a child right. can still play with that. Are there other uh, examples of some of your favorite toys for children between that age of maybe one and three years of age? Well, one that um, many, many of particularly the itinerant teachers like is the sound puzzle box. It it has tubes that are translucent so that the child who can um, see can see it actually fall um, to the bottom. But as it falls, it makes a distinctive noise, each of the three shapes. And they're the most common shapes, the circle, the square, the triangle, which are also the most different shapes. I mean, there's no circle and an, an oval to confuse a beginning sorter. The, um, what makes it more challenging for, for the little bit older end of the range is that the pieces are basically dowels that um, you can't put them in sideways. You've got to put them um, properly in to get that sound. But an interesting sideline is that if you get all the sounds matched to the tubes and they go down the tubes upside down, well, you're not going to get the sound, but if you dump it over, you're going to get the sound as they slide out. So that, I think, is one of those acts of discovery where instead of perhaps being super frustrated because, oh, I put it in and I didn't get my sound, um, you get a new perspective on it because you go, hmm, didn't get my sounds, and maybe you're a little bit frustrated, maybe you're a little bit angry, and you turn it upside down to kind of figure out what happened, and, oh, now they're making a sound. And so now you know you can play with this toy in a couple of ways. Yes, now by the time that the child is closer towards three and four years of age, that is usually the time that they begin to develop what's called visual perception. Uh, the, the visual cortex region of the brain can differentiate similarities and differences. And we now know that visual memory develops. And uh, one of the things that we like to use as a very good toy are just using things that are called parquetry blocks. And mm-hmm. parquetry blocks, they have different shapes, such as a diamond, a square, and a triangle. And there's templates. And a child with low vision is able to put the correct colored shape on the template to make the picture. And also, with children who are totally blind, we use tacky I don't know what it's called. It's like Silly Putty, and you get it at Lakeshore or stationery stores. And we put that on the bottom of the blocks. And let's say that we have a triangle and a square next to each other. We have those so that they are not going to move on the table because of this tacky type of uh, Silly Putty thing. Then we just ask the children to feel with their hands which shapes that they are find the matching shape in their pile, and superimpose it. And this mm-hmm. develops their, their visual spatial perception. Are there uh, other games and toys that you have that are similar to that, where maybe the four- and five-year-old could do some replication and duplication? Well, we have a number of um, pattern or patterning um, games. One is a beginner called beginner um, pattern blocks and what I like about that one um, it's not so much the one-to-one correspondence that you talked about with the blocks or with putting um, a, a square of a particular color on top of another square of a particular color 
but it's more like there will be a fish shape, and and then you can fit uh, the pieces. And to make it the fish, it would be very simple at first, maybe four or five different blocks, brightly colored, that fit in different sections. And because you're actually fitting them into a recessed place, the pieces aren't going to... Um, you're not going to knock one one shape away as you're trying to fit the other one. Oh, and that's I, good. Yeah, I really like that because a lot of patterning, um, the, they seem to give you a, a really nice laminated uh, sheet with the bright colors, and then you have all the blocks to fit on, but it's just really quite easy to knock it all helter-skelter as... Mm-hmm. Um, as you try to fit things, and I like that you can um, that you can avoid that a little bit with the beginner one. There are others that that come with um, magnetic pieces, so that again you you have a better chance of making a match and having the the, the match stay in place, just like with the tacky um, sticky stuff. And I think that those are, are really quite valuable. And, you know, you can even begin doing things like that at home if if kids just have, uh, say, a set of tabletop blocks that are colored. And if you wanted, you, with some white paper and some bright, bright, very bright uh, markers, you can draw squares the same shape. And uh, on the paper, and have kids uh, use their regular play blocks as as patterning blocks. Yes. Now, one of the things that's become very popular is the iPad and these different applications. And uh, there are applications that are for uh, very young children, and there's also applications for older children. And Sue, can you share with us uh, what what has been your experience? How effective has the iPad been in working with children who are either blind or partially sighted? Well, I think I think it certainly has its place. Um, my my, I guess developmentally, I, I really feel it's important that children have hands-on experiences to understand their world and to be able to connect and make sense of their world. And I think an iPad is can, is, is wonderful to build attention and build interest and eventually build cause and effect with children who have the ability to interact with the iPad. Um, and again, for, visually, for children with visual impairments, I think um, who are specifically who are low vision, the iPad also can create some wonderful opportunity for children to be, um, again, to be interactive with, with things. Um, but I, I, I caution about introducing children to an iPad too early because I think in those early years, those first, the first three years or so especially, I think there's so much that happens in terms of the sensory experiences children have with touching real objects and making and, and connecting those real objects to their world. Um, and I, 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 again, I, I see that the iPad has a, has a place and there's some wonderful applications that are musical, that are joyful and really give kids a sense of, of, of interest and, and are great for parents too because I think, again, it, 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 it creates it, an iPad that's interactive between a parent and a child can also create an opportunity for a, 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 an interactive experience that both the child and the parent can also enjoy. Um, I, to put an iPad directly, you know, I, again, I think with a young child, an iPad should be used with a caregiver, a parent, you know, a, a sibling, somebody who is, is going to be able to uh, help that child interact. But I think, personally, I, I really like, I think it's very important for children to have, interact, you know, to have hands-on experiences early in life. Now, Christina, what about other types of games? I know that some of the things I really you know, really enjoyed the most as, as, as a child growing up. I love checkers. I love playing the game Connect Four. I love playing with action figures and G.I. Joes. And believe it or not, I love playing with my cousin, her Barbie dolls. I loved it. <laughs> but uh, are, are there any special types of 
uh, toys that you have of those old-fashioned types of toys that are available for kids, you know, five, six, and seven years of age who want to use their imagination. Well, I certainly think that um, developing one's imagination and, and is, is critical. It builds vocabulary and thinking skills and problem-solving skills. I think that um, I like um, animal replicas. Um, I, I suppose that uh, the G.I. Joe's and, and um, all those kinds of different characters, those are, are valuable in the sense that one issue, I think, for children who are blind is that they may not be quite so tuned in to whatever the trendy items are or what the new movies are that involve characters, say, like, oh, Curious George, for example, that um, say that if one of the books had been made into a movie, that that might be fairly meaningless to um a child who's blind, but it would be important for that child to know something about it in terms of interacting with um, sighted peers. And so I would say that um, to some degree, um, having the popular uh, toy of the moment, if it's a if it's a useful. Um, Imagination or imaginative play toy is valuable. At the same time, um, I, I don't like and don't don't sell licensed toys for the point that I think um, having more generic things like, oh, say a set of farm animals would be an example, or or dragons for those who are really interested in. Um, that sort of period of, uh, or that kind of play, or fairies. Little mm-hmm. girls tend to be quite interested in fairies just now. And if if you give them the more generic ones rather than one that's tied into a specific book or movie, then the child's imagination is going to be left to develop its own storylines rather than just following along with um with a specific book, you know, it's like if you if you give a child a Thomas the Tank train set, well, that kind of informs the play. If you give the child a, a generic train set, uh, then there's many many opportunities if they know about Thomas the Tank. Well, it can be they can pretend that it's Thomas the Tank that's huffing uh, and puffing its way along the track, but but they can also um, come up with their own stories, some of them quite wild and woolly, and some of them really um, more like, oh, okay, we're going to get on the train and we're going somewhere. And um, then if they have other items that they can bring to the to the play, oh, maybe there's a, um, maybe there's a man riding a horse, and, and he's trying to go really fast and see if he can catch up with the train. So... Um, I think that it's important to to give really as open-ended a toy as you can and to um, kind of support that toy um, if the child needs more information. Uh, I don't think you show the child how to play, but the child might need a little bit of guidance, to, especially the totally blind child, to sort of figure out what what's in this um, this bin of fairies or or something else that they really can't quite imagine, but um, you know to give them a bit of a hint. Uh, but but basically after that, leave them on their own to create their own scenarios and and build their own storytelling capabilities and expand their own vocabulary and solve their own problems in the sense of Oh, say if you're putting um, something together, if you're using, uh, say, blocks to build a little bit of a small castle or something, and one of them keeps not staying in place, well, then that's a golden opportunity to explore, well, how come 
this um, this flat piece won't fit on top of this this column that's rolling along and off the table. Um, well, maybe it just doesn't work because of gravity. And that's something that the adult and the child's life could talk about. Well, think about it. Look, we can roll this block back and forth, uh, but we can't really roll the square one. So what do you think? You think maybe you can't yeah. put mm-hmm. a, a flat one on a rolling one. Yeah, yeah, those are some great ideas. But, you know, just for a lot of the folks out there in the audience, uh, some of the things that we have done for our patients who are either blind or low vision, we, even with the checkers that they have, we, we often use Velcro. So let's say that someone is playing checkers, and we will actually put all of the red checkers, we put Velcro on each side of it so that the child who is blind could feel which ones are going to be a red piece versus a black piece. We do the same mm-hmm. thing with the game Connect Four. Connect Four is another strategic way to develop visual perception types of skills where you can make these modifications to the game so that one can see it easier because the Velcro adds contrast, but also one can use their tactile skills. Um, when kids are also getting older, we, we have found that there are other types of games, computer games, that for teenagers could be very helpful in developing their visual perception. One that is very, very effective for this is a game called Minecraft. It's where you assemble parts to create different objects or monsters or other things like that. And in, in many of the video games, there's video games that will develop visual memory and auditory memory. Uh, there's a game called Space Channel 5. Actually, Michael Jackson created this video game, and it's also another good game to develop visual and auditory memory. But it, it's something that really is very effective in terms of with learning. Um, but, Christine, we have about 10 minutes left. And can we open it up to questions from our callers so they may ask you any specific questions or ask Sue or myself any specific questions? Uh, So if you do have a question, if you would unmute your phone by pressing star six and go ahead and and announce your name if you like and ask your question, and we'll do our best to answer them. Okay? Sounds good. Hi, Dr. Bill. This is Patty McLaughlin. Um, can you hear me? Yes, very well. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Yes. I just wanted to comment about the games that you were talking about from our past. Well, I think it's neat for very young children to have the imagination and those types of play. I think when the students get older and they're meeting more peers and their peers are playing these games, it is neat that they have a version of the game that they can play however you adapt it. And the enabling devices catalog does have some of the games you mentioned. Um, I try to get that sent to my house because sometimes if it's sent to your work, you don't get it. It's just such an interesting catalog. Um, oh, great. Have this, well, um, um, if you look up org. it's called Braille Games Kit. Mm-hmm. have Braille Monopoly, Braille Scrabble. The Connect Four, they adapted with a better stabilizing ring on the bottom of the game so it doesn't tip over. Oh, great. Because I know that Connect Four, this has that little cheesy little stand. In the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It has Braille Uno, Braille Cards, Braille Go Fish, Braille Old Maid, a tactile coloring book. And then it has a tic-tac-toe that's like a chunky, um, it's very chunky with a handle on the top, like almost like a puzzle handle. And so um, use, use rope to attach, use a C-clamp, Velcro, putty. Because I think if we put things in a tray and really, you know, keep them in the right orientation, we can really do a lot with the language. You know, use your right hand, it's over there, it's behind you in front, from many ages on up to get them to do more with the games than just play um, and have that independence but also play with a teacher, a peer, an adult, and kind of keep building on those play skills. Uh, And thank you, Christina. Your discussions were very insightful and uh, I'm going to sign off. Let someone else take a chance. 
And before you sign up, I, I think uh, also, Christina, can you share your contact information uh, for those who are on the call and those on the podcast who want to get in touch with you? I wasn't going to hang up. I'm just going to mute my phone again. Okay, great. Um, our web address is www.playworks.net. And uh, if you'd prefer to call and ask questions, we're happy to um, to work with people individually. Uh, it's toll-free at 877-579-9300. guess I have never called myself before. <laughs> but, um, and uh, we'd be, you know, quite willing to just chat with you about what your what your needs are and um we're not so well educated in terms of medical terms as we are interested in knowing what the child's interests are, his likes and dis- dislikes and and the goals that you have um so that we can suggest items that would be both pleasurable and um and help the child to to reach some of those developmental goals. Okay, great. And real quickly again, what was the phone number again? Eight seven seven five seven nine nine three hundred. Great. Five seven nine nine three zero zero. Great. Okay. And next question, please. Or does anybody other else have a comment that you'd like to share? Or maybe you have discovered some toys that have worked very well for some of your students, or in particular some of the older students who may be uh, teenage years. Does anybody have any other uh, suggestions or comments? Well, one of the things that I, I think is really a great toy for play for older students and younger, but in, in particular the older students, is musical instruments. Mm-hmm. I think if they're going to learn to play the drums or if they want to play the bongos or the piano, the flute, whatever it is, it is something that really is so stimulating for the brain. And I think once the student gets to a level that they are able to either read music or they basically have that ability to understand or hear the music in their head, they're able to play music in such an enjoyable way that it really becomes one of their favorite types of games and things to do. I know that, um, you know, my son, my son, he happens to be fully sighted. I don't know if this makes a difference, but it was to a point where every day he would come home and play video games. He had the Xbox. He had the PlayStation. He had the Nintendo. He had Game Boy. He had everything. And every day he'd come home and play these games. But he then started to take flute, started to play the flute at school in the orchestra, and started to play the piano. And those shortly after became his favorite toys was to play these musical instruments. Now, I was thrilled that... There was no more, you know, Grand Theft Auto and all these other things. But it's important to also encourage kids to play a musical instrument as as a toy or a hobby. Uh, Sue, do you have any other uh, suggestions for some of the older kids? Or Christina? Well, I was just thinking that one of the values of learning to play a musical instrument is social interaction, mm-hmm. perhaps not so easily done with a large instrument such as a piano, but um, but if if it's more portable, that kids can just jam sometimes. And um, that music is, is often referred to as the universal language, but that it truly can be that uh, people of different levels of ability in terms of playing, they can still have quite a good time. You don't have to be yo-yo ma to play a cello. <laughs> And um, that that you can have a good time with um, other people who share an interest in music and and uh, just see what does it sound like if we add a, a flute and a cello and, I don't know, um, any other sound. 
I think that sounds great. I think the other thing, too, is anything that you can record your voice with. I mean, I think I think it's one of the things that we, um, I think it's, it's, it's so important that we try to um, do our best to support imaginative play and pretend play with children with visual impairments. And, and if we can help begin to develop stories and, and be able to help children talk about their day so that it, it kind of enhances their social experiences and their sense of and their sense of recall and their sense of, of being able to be connected to their social circle. You know, just to be able to come back and maybe have a conversation with your child and talk about, well, how was your day? What did you play with? And then then having this that kind of conversation recorded so that then a child can hear back and talk about hear about their day and they can they can make up Parts of it, or maybe some of it's true to life, and some of it maybe really truly made up. But I think that goes along with the music. Almost, you're recording music, you're recording your voice, you're recording stories. It it kind of begins to begin to tell that child's story, and I think that's really very important, and that it helps them feel. I think it, it it helps goes a long way to be able to develop a sense of self-esteem, a sense of resilience, and a sense of of of, of almost like a, a verbal journaling, so to speak. Which I think it might be really helpful in a child's life. Yes, and and lastly, I'd like to also just to remind all the people out there that just because a child is either blind or partially sighted, it doesn't mean that they can't participate in other types of games that other children will. For example, you know, a lot of children, they feel they cannot participate in sports because of their vision impairment. Mm -hmm. But there are incredible blind swimmers, gymnasts, I know that a couple of my patients are just incredible tap dancers, and they're totally blind. Others, I have another young teenager, and he's a swing dancer. He says, you know, it's great being a swing dancer because I'm always with a partner, so it makes it a bit easier, and he likes to do swing. He also does ballroom. And because of Dancing with the Stars, he says, man, this is cool. You know, I'm not just a nerdy guy dancing like this, but it's cool. But, you know, I guess I'll end it this evening with a great story of a young man. Um, This is a young man who's very dear to me. His name is Jake. And Jake, for the first 12 years of his life, he was battling retinoblastoma. This is a cancerous tumor of the eye, and he lost one eye as an infant. They had to remove the eye to protect his life. Um, As he grew older, he had vision. And he was able to play golf and football, and he's just a very, very popular child. But right about the age of 12, the tumor came back, and the doctor said, unfortunately, we're going to have to remove your eye to save your life. Well, they did remove his eye, and he came to see me, and he said, Dr. Bill, I've heard about you. I've heard that you become blind, and I need to know how I could continue to go to school without any vision. And I know you've just lost your vision, and anything you could do to help me would be great. Well, we did our best to help him, and he is doing incredibly well. But I was just listening to ESPN Radio the other night, and they did a segment on this young man named Jake. And I said, you kidding me. Could it really be Jake? And it was. And it was a story about how his goal was always to be on the football team. And the only position that he could play on the football team without any sight was to be the center where he would snap the ball whenever there was going to be a field goal to kick. This is called the long snapper. So he has to hike the ball about 10 yards away, and the teammate has to catch the ball, and the kicker kicks it. Now, you can imagine how hard that would be to do if you had vision. But he learned to do that even as a blind person, and he is on the team. And it is his goal to make the USC football team as a long snapper. But this, again, just shows you that children, they do need to play not only for development and learning but it's also just for our own competitive spirit or to be part of the team. Or maybe we're going to play a musical instrument, as Christina said, jam with the other people so we could be socially involved. So overall, I think that uh, 
this was really a wonderful, wonderful presentation, uh, Christina, that you have given, and we really thank you for joining us this evening. Definitely. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate having been invited. And uh, we we know that this is going to be, again, available at the Braille Institute website at brailleinstitute.org, also at www.airsla.org. We'd like to thank uh, Mr. Joe Yurka for recording this. And, Sue, can you tell us what do we have coming up next month? Sure. Um, On January the 14th, um, Dr. Bill will be back, and he'll be talking about glasses or contacts. This is a big question for so many of our families and and questions for uh, providers out there. Basically, why and when one is typically prescribed for your child and, and why. So that will be very interesting, I'm sure, for many of us. Well, great. Well, thank you very much uh, for hosting this again, Sue. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Joe, for recording, and we want to thank all of you out there for listening. Uh, We wish you a very, very safe and happy holiday season. Thank you. Good night, everybody.